Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Visual art intersects with math and physics in the works of world-renowned origami artist Robert J. Lang. Some of his designs are on view in the exhibition Origami in the Garden at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. We'll hear how Lang's origami artworks first go through a mathematical design process and more about the elegant interaction of science with art, plus a tribute to the memory of jazz legend Ramsey Lewis, who died recently at the age of 87. First... It's sobering to realize that interracial marriage was signed into U.S. law only 55 years ago. In 1959, a children's book about a black rabbit marrying a white rabbit came under fire for its subject. The ensuing controversy over Garth Williams' book the Rabbit's Wedding, was the inspiration for Kenneth Jones's play Alabama Story. George Ensemble Theater's production of the show is on stage through September 25th at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. Playwright Kenneth Jones joins me now via Zoom with director Thomas W. Jones II. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Kenneth, would you tell us more about the backstory of the rabbit's wedding and why it was so controversial at that time? Yes, I stumbled upon the story of a librarian named Emily Reed uh, when I was reading the obituaries in the New York Times. And found that she was a librarian who protected this very sweet, very innocent little black and white picture book that <laughs> it inflamed the feelings of uh, segregationists in all, all throughout the South, actually. And I, th- and I thought there was a fascinating story to be told about a woman who protects the freedom to read and freedom of expression 
it was a black bunny rabbit who marries a white bunny rabbit. It's a very pure, puerile book meant for children aged three to seven years old, I think. And written, by the way, by Garth Williams, who was known for illustrations of Charlotte's Web and Little House on the Prairie. He happened to write this book as well, but he illustrated it quite beautifully. It seemed like the stuff of drama to me the minute I read about it. Mm. It's astonishing to think that something as innocent as two rabbits of different colors getting married in a children's story could have such an impact. What do we know about Garth Williams's intention when writing and illustrating this book? Well, this story of censorship made international headlines, and Garth Williams was prompted to certainly make a statement about it. And he said, I, have, I had no intention of making this a political book. This was about fuzzy love. This was not intended to wake the sleeping giants of hate. He said such beautiful things about it, about, you know, the story that I, I essentially swiped what his public statement was for the play. There's no evidence that he had political motive. If you look at the book, though, you can see very clearly that the white bunny rabbit and the black bunny rabbit do drink from the same sparkling brook in the meadow. And it's easy to possibly interpret that as a drinking fountain, uh, which were obviously segregated at the time of the writing of this book. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's about two bunny rabbits drinking from a brook. Mm. You mentioned there was no political statement. It doesn't seem political so much as a comment on humanity social justice, which certainly needed to prevail more in 1959 when the book came out. Yes, and it's important also to remember that the book was published in black and white. So part of his statement was, I'm an artist and I'm into contrast and yin and yang and black and white. And so quite naturally, he didn't want to have two white bunny rabbits or two black bunny rabbits. That's kind of boring visually. So there was also an artistic appeal there. Hmm. This play has been produced by more than 40 theaters around the country, but this is its first time in Georgia. The setting of the play is, quote, in the Deep South. Since opening night, Tom... What have you heard from Atlanta audiences? Well, I think it's been very warmly received and very richly received. You know, I I wish I could say that the topics, my family came opening night and they said, you know what, we we were somehow moved. We thought we were going to see something because they knew something of the subject matter that felt like a museum piece. You know, a look back, you know, a kind of retrospective on where we are, on where we've come. And she said she was just reminded with all the stuff that's going on today that it just resonated in a way that's very contemporary, that ideas are still under assault, that we're still having to negotiate and manage this division between Black and white and others. We are still having to try and figure out the free exchange of ideas that's under assault and under attack. I mean, we would come into rehearsal every day and without fail, someone would pull up either an article or, or some reference to some librarian or some book that was being banned or some some community that was outraged that there were books in libraries, even <laughs> to the extent of firing you know, librarians around the country because 
they were protecting, again, the books and the free exchange of ideas. So a, a piece that is anchored and tethered in 1959 Deep South, or as, as Kenneth says in the opening line, the Deep South of the imagination, it resonates in a way that's far too contemporary and that as far as we've traveled, we haven't traveled far enough. The Georgia run of the play coincides with the national observance of Banned Books Week, September 18th through 24th, that is. And that event centers around threats to censorship. Was it intentional for Georgia Ensemble Theater to present this production during the period of Banned Books Week? Well, I wish I could say that I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, speak on their behalf and say, yes, it was holistically intentional. Uh, no, I think it, it, it may be one of those happy accidents uh, or unfortunate accidents, uh, you know, that at this point we have to have a National Band Book Week in 2022, that the need to have that kind of event or that kind of observation is, I think, a harbinger of where we are and where we have evolved to politically, that as much as we have you know, improved the landscape, that there was still so much work to do, which is why I think the play is, is ultimately very, you know, resonates in a way that's, that's, that's quite contemporary and still important and evocative in the exchange of ideas. Who are we as a, as a culture? What are we going to protect? What are we going to believe in? What are the state of really racial politics, identity politics with respect? And even more importantly, what is the role of the artist in trafficking through those ideas? And whether intentionally or unintentionally, I think the artist is the provocateur of ideas that whether one's intent is overtly political, art by its nature is political in that it discusses those power relationships among human beings. And in doing so begins to observe what those contradictions are, I think, within our culture. And how is it that we as, as a community reconcile those contradictions so that there is a free space for all of us to exist in? If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with playwright Kenneth Jones and director Thomas W. Jones II about Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Alabama Story. Please tell us about the different characters and each of their roles within this story. One of my goals in writing the play was to make it highly theatrical. I'm, I'm not interested in writing a film script where everything is completely literal, but saying that I wanted to throw in romance and memory play and courtroom drama and have all these sort of tropes and types of, of plays that I love and see if I could mash them up in an interesting way. The play is, includes some narration and is introduced by Garth Williams himself, the artist and illustrator who talks about his book and who talks about the world of the play, which I call the deep south of the imagination. I took from history the librarian, the state librarian of Alabama, Emily Reed, and the state senator who challenged her, who tried to get her fired as state librarian, who said to her face that this book should be burned. His name was E.O. Eddins. He was a state senator from uh, Demopolis, Alabama. I've changed his name to E.W. Higgins for various reasons, but they are the main antagonist and protagonist. They both think that they are the moral centers of their world. In fact, they are, I guess, the moral centers of the world and their brains. Hero and heroine, male and female, north and south. She's not from Alabama. 
and there's a, a secondary couple that I introduce into the play. This is ultimately a play about white people devouring each other over ideas and over a world that they created. There aren't a lot of Black folks in this particular piece of history, in this historical librarian censorship story. Although there are many, many stories, obviously, about how Black people were shut out of libraries and, and didn't have a place at the table. I did want to see what the private side of this public debate was. And I created two fictional characters, a white woman named Lily and a black man named Joshua, who were childhood friends. They were bound by books together as, as kids and separated by a, a tragic family experience. And they reunite that same summer that Emily Reed is sort of put on the griddle. So across town from the library, Lily and Joshua meet in a park. This park is a segregated park. It was shut down because a federal judge said that Black people should be allowed in this park and the city of Montgomery shut it down. I have them meet on the edge of this park and have a conversation. This is again, reflecting what Thomas said about the free flow of ideas, the exchange of ideas. I think government and organizations have failed us in some way. And I really wanted to write a one-on-one -on -one story about a black person talking to a white person, hopefully without the black person lecturing and being angry and hopefully without the white person being a victim or saving the black person. I wanted to have a free exchange. She ultimately gives him something. He gives her something. The Bible's very important to her and the newspapers are very important to him. So ultimately, there's a free exchange in the play that is, I dare say, the you know spiritual versus you know political or or you know he gives her the world and she gives him God and that was the goal to sort of reflect what was happening in the main story. This is the perfume. This is the romance. This is the heart behind the ideas. Tom, you mentioned the role of the artist as provocateur. How does this play address censorship and who decides what's appropriate? Who gets to decide? Yeah, no, I think that's at the, at the heart of it. In fact, there's a, there's a character that is uh, Emily's uh, assistant and researcher who oddly enough name is Thomas, who, who keeps saying that Emily protects the books, he protects her. And I think that to me speaks really volumes as to centrally what is at the heart of the play. How is it that we as a community and who in the community will protect those free flow of ideas? And that if we don't, that all of us, I think, are, are subject to kind of to fail, you know, and, and that even in Emily, I think uh, something to Cornell West, that ordinary people have lives of epic significance, that Emily is not an overtly political human being, but finds herself in at the crossroads of what is it that she's going to protect? And how is it that her obligation just as a, as a woman, as a human being, as an intellectual, as a professional, how she's going to take on the mantle of saying, you know, at all costs, we must protect not only books, we must protect intellectualism, we must protect the idea of what children have, what, what we as a community have access to, and that that obligation falls on all of us, whether we view ourselves as, as overtly political people or not that we as a community have to protect the free flow of ideas, that we have a community also have to protect each other in the pursuit of that, that we don't have to agree, um, but we need to at least agree to disagree and that we're going to stand on some common ground and some common place that allows us to at least evolve as human beings. 
And in that evolution, in that transformation, perhaps we'll learn how to live with each other, but not if censorship is at the heart of it, not if we begin to negate and disregard not only our access to ideas, but our access to each other. And I think that's what probably the perilous thing about integration is. And what artists, I think, can do at the center of that is begin to raise those questions, at least to begin to point to what those contradictions are in a way that we can, if not embrace them, at least understand them, deconstruct them, and begin to construct something in its place that's far more manageable and far more humane. Kenneth, though it's set in 1959, how does this story resonate in this moment? The story resonates in troubling and uh, profound ways. As Thomas said, you, you open the paper up every day and you see librarians under fire for uh, simply keeping materials in a library, not even necessarily promoting those materials, but making them available. In 1959, it was race and religion were taboo topics in books and sex as well, sexual content. These are the books that were under fire in, in the 50s. Today, a lot of that, the LGBT community, books about the trans community, books about religion and Harry Potter and anti-Christian content is under fire. People are talking about banning books and burning books today, and, and mostly that has shifted to LGBT content uh, and the belief that, that children are being indoctrinated just by having access to that material. Emily Reed says in the play, it's as old as Gutenberg. Not everybody is going to want to read everything that's ever printed. So it's, it's still alive and still with us. And I wish it wasn't. I thought I was writing a period piece. Uh, I was not. Miss, I was starting to say Mr. Jones, but I realized that could be either of you. Yes. <laughs> Does Director Jones have anything to add? Just that I think... In, in a larger sense, it's wonderful when, when, when artists of all stripes and, and from all communities begin to take on, in, in a substantive way, those issues that I think that are germane. And I think what's, what's really wonderful about this piece is that you're stepping back into a world and beginning to look at the world you live in and recognizing that there's a parallelism to both, that the world of, of the South in the 1950s, in a certain sense, still parallels the world of, of America in the 21st century, 20 some odd years into the 21st century. And to that extent, I think it, it, it underscores why art is important, why theater is important, because in the theater, there is a free exchange of ideas where we do tackle censorship and that we are able to kind of coalesce as aggregate civilized human beings and look at something through collective eyes and make a determination as to whether or not we want to live like this as a culture or whether or not we want to transform it and change it. And I think it's all a good place to what Kenneth has done really, really successfully and well is this ask a provocative question that compels us as an audience to answer. Director Thomas W. Jones II and playwright Kenneth Jones. Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Alabama Story is on stage through September 25th at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. In a moment, Atlanta-based pianist Joe Alterman reflects upon his friendship with the jazz legend Ramsey Lewis. Lewis passed away last week at the age of 87. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Jazz legend Ramsey Lewis died last week at the age of 87. Among his friends and greatest admirers is the Atlanta-based jazz pianist Joe Alterman. Last October, When Joe and I were discussing his album, The Upside of Down, he explained how he met Lewis and his other jazz mentors. I got very lucky when I moved to New York and I I was a student at NYU. I got an internship just doing office stuff at the Blue Note Jazz Club. I did this internship for quite a few years. And after a while, the club would have a Christmas party and I'd play the party and things like that. And they started to kind of take an interest in my music. So after a while, they'd have me be an opening act for people that they thought whose audience might like my music. So that was someone like Les McCann and Ramsey Lewis. And um, the first big opening act I did there, I played for Hiromi. I opened for Hiromi, the pianist. And uh, Ahmad Jamal was in the audience and I was so nervous. It was the first time I had played in front of one of my heroes. My nerves, I couldn't get out of my head and I didn't know how to approach that situation. But as the uh, opening experiences kept going, I, I started to learn to, to play for the people, not just for the one person you're really trying to impress. And by the time I got to play for Ramsey and Les, they embraced me more. <laughs> oh my goodness. Would you tell the story of how you met Ramsey Lewis? Oh yeah. <laughs> so I basically, I met, this is through the Blue Note doing these opening acts. And I remember when I was opening for him, my back was to the stairs. So I couldn't see, you know, when he was watching me, but my bass player looked at me and gave me this look like Ramsey Lewis is standing right behind you watching you play the piano. And, and at that point I got kind of excited. And, and afterward I got off the stage, his uh, manager at the time said, Ramsey wants to see you. I didn't know what to expect, but I went into his dressing room and he was just so kind to me, uh, really encouraging I was playing opposite him. He, he was telling me about when he was my age, playing opposite Oscar Peterson at the London House in Chicago. And uh, at the end of the conversation, I asked if we could keep in touch. And he gave me his email address. And I'd email him every, every so often. And he, he'd always write back with great advice and stuff. But basically, our friendship really started when I had a, a Valentine's gig somewhere. And the sustain pedal of the piano was broken. how can you sustain a love relationship if the sustaining pedal of the piano is broken exactly it was all ballads you know for valentine's day concert and and i was kind of freaked out i remember writing ramsey a note and saying 
should I be able to do a concert without a sustain pedal or is this something I should be prepared for? And basically I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks, but all of a sudden I got a call from a random number and I didn't answer it. And I got the voicemail and it was him. And he was telling me about a time when he used to like to, you know, slide his fingers all the way down the piano. And he did it uh, one time when he was younger so hard that he actually fell off the bench of the piano. (laughs) (laughs) And he told me that just to say, you know, eventually you're going to be in a place where you can request a working piano. Don't worry about it. Oh, we'll talk about going all the way down the piano (laughs) and up the keyboard. Ramsey Lewis praised your use of the entire keyboard. This is when he first heard you play as a very young pianist, and he he talked about your left hand. Forget about the left hook. Can you explain for people who don't know the workings of a great keyboard artist, why it's important to cover the entire keyboard. Jazz piano was a two-handed piano thing uh, up until the bebop era. You had to have a strong left hand. It was basically a lot of these pianists back then were playing solo gigs for dances and they had to make people dance. (laughs) So they had to have a strong left hand. But basically when the bebop era came around, they were playing more in small groups and you didn't really need to you know, have such a strong left hand, you more accented in between like little punctuation marks. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, and it's not a knock on anything, but basically from the bebop era on, people were using it more like a single line instrument, like a trumpet or like a saxophone and punctuating with the left hand. And so the two-handed piano thing became seen kind of as passe to some people, kind of a lost art to, to many others. And uh, I think what Ramsey's talking about is he just appreciates that, you know, he hears a lot of piano players who have a strong right hand and can play a lot of single note lines. Well, but he doesn't hear, uh, you know, a strong left hand or, or even the use of the left hand a lot. So I think he just really appreciated that him being a strong left hand or a two-handed piano player himself. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense on your new recording. What example would illustrate what Ramsey liked in your play? Osei Shalom is one. Um, he's always encouraged me. You know, we talk about the fact that I resonate with this gospel sound, and that's really influenced me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he finds that really interesting because he he resonates with the gospel sound because he grew up playing in a church. But I'm Jewish and never have never been to church. So he kind of has encouraged me to lean into songs that I grew up with. So my take on No Say Shalom is really uh, my using my gospel influence to explore my my Jewish background. But I think also with that song, there is a lot of the strong left hand thing that he was talking about. Mm-hmm. He also uh, appreciates things like time after time, because I know it, it's a uh, we both like happy sounding piano players. And I think that happy sound mm-hmm. really comes across uh, across there. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with happy? Happy's really been, you know, downgraded. We certainly can use some happiness now to get us through these times. But I'm thinking about some of Lewis's gold records with the in crowd and hang on Sloopy. Mm. <laughs> Just what, what one would consider upbeat. And you not only embrace that, but 
you have taken it into the 21st century with your own style. Oh, thank you. Atlanta jazz pianist Joe Alterman discussing his album The Upside of Down, as well as his friendship with jazz legend Ramsey Lewis. Lewis passed away last week at the age of 87. Coming up, we'll explore the intersection of art, math, and physics with origami artist Robert J. Lang. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The ancient tradition of origami represents the folding together of art, mathematics, and science. Robert J. Lang is among the world's leading masters of the art form. The distinguished physicist and engineer has constructed some of the most complex and intricate origami designs ever created. Lang is also a collaborator with the renowned sculptor Kevin Box, and their work together is on view in the exhibition Origami in the Garden at the Atlanta Botanical Garden through October 16th. Robert J. Lang joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. Please tell us how you discovered origami as a child. Well, I started when I found some instructions in a craft book. It had lots of different crafts in it. Some of those were instructions for four of the traditional Japanese origami figures. I was about six years old and looking for things to do, and I thought, well, this looks fun, so I'll give it a try, and I loved it and have kind of been hooked ever since. What do you think first enthralled you about origami? One of the biggest things was it was a way to, to create neat and beautiful objects from almost nothing. I didn't need anything other than a sheet of paper. And you know, so many crafts, you need materials and tools, and paints and glue and all that sort of thing, and consumables, but, but paper was free and, and boundless. So I could, I could entertain myself for a really long time, and maybe even better than that, I could, I could experiment. I could, once I learned to fold something, I could try to modify it, try to create something new, try to combine ideas from two or three different things. And because paper was so cheap and easily available, there was really no no barrier to creativity. Mm. Now, you are among the pioneers blending origami with mathematics. At what point in your career did you make the connection between math and origami? That would have become, I'd say, explicit in my early 20s. I was good at math in high school and enjoyed math, and that led me to to go into a scientific career doing engineering and then applied physics. I studied lasers, 
And in particular, I focused on theoretical analysis. So using mathematics to learn how to accomplish goals that I had in the design of lasers, making them higher power or brighter, or other nice properties. And origami had been my hobby all along. And so I had developed a pretty good intuitive understanding of origami, but it felt like origami was subject to the same sorts of laws that, that lasers were that could be described by math. And that if I could, if I could describe those laws explicitly in mathematical terms, then I could use the tools of math to help me accomplish the artistic things I wanted to accomplish with origami. And that turned out to succeed beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> as well as those of people you've worked with and who've admired your origami art. In your 2008 TED Talk, you identified four key concepts to learn and create origami. Would you walk us through those four points? Yeah, those were, I think, the, the, the laws of, of flat foldable origami. And, and I should stress that that's a, a subset of the much larger world of mathematical laws of origami. But if you're folding things that are going to end up flat, uh, which many traditional designs are, it turns out that the pattern of folds, a crease pattern, has to obey four relatively simple rules. And if you create a pattern that obeys those four rules, it will fold into an origami shape. One of them was that you could color the regions of the crease pattern, like, like coloring a map, you could do it in just two colors. And, and one related to the the number of mountains and valley folds at each point. Mountain folds are the ones that poke up like a mountain. Valley folds are ones that poke down like a valley. And it turns out at any point where, the, where those folds come together, the number of mountains and valleys have to differ by two. There's a, a law that relates to the angles between consecutive folds around a point that if you were to measure the angles going around a, a place where a bunch of lines come together, uh, the even numbered angles have to add up to the same amount as, of, of total angle as the odd numbered angles. And then the last, the fourth law relates to how the layers stack. And it's a little harder to, to describe in radio, but it basically boils down to the idea that when the paper is folded, the paper can't penetrate itself. You, could, you couldn't have paper passing through itself like a ghost passing through a wall. And so if you design a pattern that satisfies those four laws, it will fold into a flat origami shape. Earlier this spring, I interviewed your collaborator, Kevin Box. You assisted him with his and his wife's creations of large-scale metal origami installations for the Origami in the Garden exhibition I mentioned in the intro. Kevin could not speak highly enough of you, and he is fantastic at acknowledging what a team effort these works are. Would you tell us 
about the collaborative process? Sure. And I will start by saying, I think I and, and my other origami collaborators with Kevin, we kind of have a, a mutual admiration society with Kevin because we just love him and Jennifer to death. But the thing I think that makes the collaboration work is first that we bring something complementary to the collaboration. We are designing origami patterns and Kevin has both a vision of the of the metal artwork, but also the artistic skill to figure out how to create in metal something that still speaks like paper. So when you see these, these pieces, for example, the ones scattered around the Atlanta Botanical Garden, they're outside, they, they may be quite large, many of them are enormous, but they still read as paper origami. And, and part of that is this craftsmanship on the part of Kevin, but part of it is also kind of an artistic vision of, of how to translate the origami figure from, from this small, fragile paper object into something large that still reads as paper origami. It is fantastic to behold. And just as you were saying about the idea of one simple sheet of paper appealing to you as a little boy, to think that that very notion applies to some of these enormous metal sculptures is mind-boggling. It is, and there's, there's even a little bit of a paradox involved because the, the techniques that are used to create the metal sculptures, casting and fabrication, and you know, fabrication involves cutting and welding and so forth. And so you might think that's getting far from folding of paper, but it's actually possible to fold thin sheet metal into origami shapes. And I've done some of that, but the, when you're actually folding metal, there's a compromise in the rendering so that what you end up with actually looks less like paper origami than what is re the result of these casting and fabricational processes. So the paradox is even though we're using techniques that seem far removed from paper, ultimately it has greater fidelity to the concept of the, the single uncut sheet paper origami than if we were actually trying to fold metal. Amazing. Kevin Box mentioned that you were consulted on the unfolding design for the Webb Telescope. That's kind of combining a couple projects. I didn't work on the design of the Webb specifically. I, I did work on the unfolding design of a different NASA telescope that's under development called Starshade. And that, is, that one is still being developed and hopefully will fly sometime later this decade. And then for the web, they asked me to create an origami rendition of the mirror, you know, as sort of a part of the publicity of web. So I did do that, but the web itself, the engineers, mechanical engineers and designers who, who did the web, um, they were able to accomplish all the folding that needed to be accomplished on their own. Well, still a huge honor. And we'll look forward to, did you say it's called the star shape? Star shade. 
Starshade. Okay. Yes. I will say it's actually larger, even larger than the than the Webb telescope. It'll be about 30 meters across. And it's an element of a spaceborne telescope uh, where the telescope and then an element called an occulter fly in formation some kilometers apart up in space. And, and the combination of the two are used to look for planets that are around other stars elsewhere in the galaxy. Mm. Now, you worked for NASA for a while, didn't you? I did. My, my first full-time job after my PhD was working at Jet Propulsion Lab, which is part of NASA administered by Caltech. And uh, I was there for almost five years, but actually not doing origami for NASA, but doing research on semiconductor lasers and related optoelectronics, which was what my scientific training was. Uh -huh. Would you tell us some highlights of your origami applications to other engineering problems? One of the other nice areas of applications of origami and engineering is, is in medicine. And it's because the problem is similar to the one in space that you, the thing you want to make is small for the, for the journey, because in space you need to fit it into a rocket. In medicine, you want it to go into the body through as small a hole as possible. And then you want it to expand to produce some sort of functionality. And so one of the things I worked on probably 10, 15 years ago was uh, a heart implant for a company that the treatment was amounted to kind of a, a bag that wraps around an ailing heart to provide some support. But it needed to fit into a little injector so that it could be inserted between the ribs. You didn't have to do open heart surgery. And so I did some con consultation with the, that company on developing folding patterns that would collapse that, that bag into a, into a small shape so it would fit inside its injector tube. And am I correct in recalling that you worked on airbag design? I also, yes, I also did some work on airbag design. And uh, it was interesting. The work I did was purely mathematical. It's, it wasn't figuring out how to fold a particular airbag in a particular way, but rather figuring out what the mathematics was that could be used in a computer algorithm to do the folding of airbags. The interesting thing about that was that the math that was needed to model the flattening of an airbag in a computer program, the reason I was able to contribute to, to that problem was the math was the same as the math needed to design complicated origami insects, which was a specialty of mine. So I had originally worked out that math in insect design, but it turned out that the same math worked for airbags. And that I think is an example of the justification for curiosity-driven research that no one might have predicted that that math would eventually have an application. I was just trying to make better artwork. But math doesn't know what it's going to be used for. And so the same math very often does turn out down the road to have real-life practical applications. Fantastic. What have been some of your favorite 
origami designs? You know that I get that question, and it's it's a lot like which of your children is your favorite、oh. child. Very often, it's the most recent thing, and you might think you know that it would be the most complicated or, or detailed thing. But for example, one of my favorites is one of also one of my most recent is just a little bird design that I've been working on, and there's nothing I could point to that says you know this is particularly challenging, you know, because it's just a bird with a body and legs and so forth. But what I'm trying to capture, particularly with my with my animal work, my representational design, is kind of the emotional impact of seeing the real creature. And and I feel like with this this bird, I I am capturing the sort of delicacy and almost a sweetness of little bird hopping around, and, and so it brings me delight. Oh, that's quite lovely. One of your designs from the late 1980s. This may be your most famous to a general audience. Is a Cuckoo clock, you created in Germany, I think, in the Black Forest region. It has a deer head ornament, a wreath of leaves, and even a second and hour hand, all made out of a single sheet of paper. For real? Yes, and and you're right. That is probably my most famous, and it was certainly one of the. Th- Things that kind of put me on the map in in the origami world, you know, some thirty、uh, years ago, and I had done a kind of a simple cuckoo clock even earlier than that. I was trying to make action models, things that moved, and I thought, oh, making a clock that a a, a bird could pop out of would be a good challenge. And and the original cuckoo clock was just sort of a box clock face and the bird. But then I postdocked in Germany. I got to visit. The Black Forest and saw these you know, incredibly ornate cuckoo clocks that are the traditional craft there, and I thought I'd like to try to capture that sense in origami, and so spent a couple of months working out the design. It was pretty pretty intricate to figure out how to get all those elements: the ones you mentioned, the deer's head, the weights, the cuckoo, the clock face, pine cone weights, pendulum, all of that from a single uncut sheet of paper. But, Eventually succeeded. How large was that sheet of paper? So it's from a long rectangle, and it was about three meters long, so about ten feet long, and maybe a, a, a well about a foot wide. Absolutely astonishing. Clearly, that was a milestone for you. Very, very much so. It was also when I eventually. Was able to write down folding instructions for how to do it. It was by far the the longest folding sequence of anything that I'd ever come up with. <laughs> And this was aside from doing your postdoc. Yeah, it was. It was e- <laughs> you know evenings and weekends. So during the <laughs> during the day, I I, I went in.、Um, I was doing this with a company. So you know during the day, I'd go in and I'd do laser research all day, and then. At night,、uh, come home and, and work on the cuckoo clock. When it was coined, the acronym STEM didn't include an A for arts. That came later when STEM became STEAM. 
Why do you think art and science often are perceived as entirely separate? I think the thing that people make a distinction over is that in science, there are definite rules. And I mean, the process of, of science is actually trying to discover what those rules are. Engineering is the application of those of, of that knowledge to solve human problems. But science itself is discovering what the rules are. And, and art is the creation of things whose primary purpose is, is aesthetic appeal in some way, whether it's painting or sculpture or literature, we're, we're appealing to aesthetics. So, so the goals of science and, and art are different. But what people perhaps don't realize is how closely linked they are, that the things you can accomplish in arts are very often governed by rules that are discoverable by science. And, and perhaps the thing that is least appreciated is that in science, aesthetic values are very strong drivers of what we study in science and how we go about studying in science. There's a concept called elegance in mathematics that, that every mathematician appreciates. An elegant solution is the best. And, and elegance is fundamentally an aesthetic judgment. So, so they're really more closely tied than we might think. And so it, it was nice when that A made it back into uh, taking STEM into STEAM. Yeah. Robert, how do artists and scientists coexist in your role identity? Well, in, in, I, see, I see myself as both artist and scientist, and everything I do is a mixture of the two, and, and I, I can't even separate them. So when I'm trying to solve an engineering problem, you know, you might think, well, that's pure science, but but I'm still striving for for beauty and, and elegance, in part because I know from experience that a, an elegant solution is very often technically the best solution. Not always, but very often it is. And so that's worth striving for. Conversely, when I am trying to create a new piece of art and I'm striving for an aesthetic result, I know that if I use the techniques and knowledge of science and math and, and the like, that those techniques will help me more effectively accomplish my aesthetic goals. So in the end, everything is some of both. Robert J. Lang, world-renowned origami artist and physicist. You can see his collaborative designs with Kevin Box at Origami in the Garden on view at the Atlanta Botanical Garden through October 16th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the next installment of our series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. This month, Chef Asada Reed and 
food historian Nikola McConnell highlight the story behind Atlanta's Caribbean and Mexican cuisine. Plus, we'll hear about Atlanta's inaugural Art Week. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.